This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There's something going on tonight that I found really interesting because, again, because I had no idea that such a thing existed. I didn't realize, not only did it not, I did not know it existed, I didn't know it was necessary, I didn't know this was an issue, I didn't know there was a failing in a certain area. And there is a Wikipedia edit-a-thon. Now think about that for a second. We all know what Wikipedia is. There's an edit-a-thon going on, essentially, as I understand it, to add more female voices to the mix, female points of view to the Wikipedia mix. Well, the woman who is behind this, is driving this, her name is Erin O'Neill, and she joins me now. Erin, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for talking to me. Uh, How did you or anyone else realize, discover, come upon the fact that there was a dearth of female input into Wikipedia? Well, it's uh, it's in the numbers. Uh, Wikipedia keeps track of the uh, gender of their editors, and uh, at this point in time, about ten to fifteen percent of editors are women, and uh, the rest are men. Now, does this translate into a uh, an imbalance as far as information that's on the site? Yeah, I mean, I think it's natural. I don't think it's anything vindictive, but um, there. Naturally, will be more written about men um, if men are the ones writing the content. Um, and I think that sometimes with tech, uh, there's a bit of um, a mental hurdle that women feel when they want to get involved. And that's why the organization running this event tonight, Ladies Learning Code, exists in the first place, is to make this sort of activity or coding or anything computer-related a little bit less intimidating and to provide a, a comfortable space for beginners to dip their foot in. You know, when you call it that, when you call it ladies learning code, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed because, you know, I suppose, uh, I, I don't know anything about code either. So I should probably have come out to, uh, to learn how to do it, but I, I've never actually gone on to Wikipedia to try and edit it. Is it a complicated procedure? Like, is it a daunting thing for someone who doesn't know a lot about computers, male or female? Is it a daunting thing to go in and fix? No, not at all. Um, we're in the middle of the event right now, and uh, that has been a common refrain. I can't believe how easy this is. So um, the the event is happening right now. We're going to make this an annual thing, um, but there are infinite resources online if this is something that piques your interest. Um, the organization that we're partnering with on this event is called Art and Feminism, and they're running events like this across the globe for this week, which is the week of International Women's Day. Um, and their website is artandfeminism.org, and they have video tutorials and links galore to help you learn how to edit Wikipedia. Okay. Now here's the tricky part about this. And I think, I think you'll agree with me, but you may not. That's okay. Uh, Wikipedia has a reputation among some, and I'm one of them that, I mean, I write for a living. I'm on the radio for a living. I will go to Wikipedia for maybe to get me started towards something, but I never rely on Wikipedia as my final source on something because of the very fact that pretty much anybody could go in and be an editor. So when you're going in to, uh, to add more of a female view to this or something, is there the thought that, you know what, th- this is, uh, how, much, how much impact are we making? Because I don't know that everybody looks at Wikipedia and believes what they see anyway. Well, Wikipedia is actually the third most visited website in the world. So um, I think that, you know, I was in school in university 10 years ago, and at that point... 
our professors were saying, do not use Wikipedia to <laughs> exactly. cite things. Um, but these days, it, it's evolving. And um, the uh, editors on Wikipedia, like those of us working at the edit a thon tonight, are sort of a base level of editor. And then there are super editors whose job it is to make sure that the edits that are placed by uh, entry-level editors on Wikipedia are properly done and properly cited. And Wikipedia actually has a really strict guideline for what kind of information can be placed permanently on the site. Um, and those are really, um, you know, media articles, journal articles, um, well-researched information. So you can't just put, you know, uh, Aaron O'Neill is the best person ever on there, you have to actually have well-cited uh, updates for them to stay on the site. Have you tried that tonight, though? <laughs> <laughs> Before the night is over. Before the night is over, you've got to create an Aaron O'Neill uh, Wikipedia page and put that on there. You know what? You can qu- you can quote me, Aaron. Say, according to Scott Radley, Aaron O'Neill is the greatest person ever, and see if that will stay up there. But but I'll it, take you up on that. But what? But the thing about this is that I, I suppose that it would really what you're doing. I completely understand the purpose behind what you're doing and the value. You know, mm-hmm. even if even if people don't all believe everything, if people's eyeballs are going to be crossing over this, let's have yeah. let's have people seeing some women's things. Now, the problem or the challenge, let's use the challenge, is that if you and the people who are there doing this aren't putting accurate stuff in there, it would seem to defeat the purpose of what you're trying to. Accomplished. So, how are you guys, all, you women, you people? I suppose it's a mix mm-hmm. of everyone. How yeah, are is. you making sure that what you're putting in there actually fits the bill of being completely accurate? So later on, it's not just removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good question. Um, so, for example, one of the um, one of the journal or Wikipedia articles that we notice is missing from the site. Um, most Hamiltonians are familiar with the name Thomas McQuesten. And um, he has a fairly robust Wikipedia entry, but his mother and his sisters are um, only a name on Wikipedia. They don't have their own article. And there are a lot of um, sources in the city, like the Hamilton Public Library Archive and uh, a woman named Mary Anderson has written a number of books about the McQuestions. So there's legitimate information out there about uh, Mary Baker McQuestion, his mother, but there's no Wikipedia page. So that's one of the articles that we're working on tonight is it's not just it's not to lend a female opinion or a female perspective to Wikipedia. It's just to make sure that women are represented whenever possible um, on the site. So we're using books, real books from the... Uh, Those still exist? Library. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, we're using online archives to find historical photos. Um, And, you know, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Canadian Encyclopedia still have online presences. Um, They're just not that box set that that your parents had on the bookshelf. Um, (laughs) That some still do in the basement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Gathering dust. So so we're we're using uh, legitimate sources that that exist across the city to try and um, expand the information that uh, represents women in our city on Wikipedia. So how is it determined? First of all, how many people are there doing this today? 
So we have about 25 people um, who have signed up to come out. And uh, last year when we did this, we had about six. So wow, okay. I, I'm liking the trend. <laughs> but and did they, was the idea that they would each show up with one or two or three women or mm-hmm. that, that they would then, because I'm wondering how you, it's so broad. Like the, the world, it's, you know, you look online, if you were to show up with nothing, to know where to start is impossible. So was everyone supposed yeah. to come with one or two or three things that you're going to work on this and this and this and we're going to fix it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the people who registered for the evening, we asked them ahead of time to think about what wasn't on Wikipedia that they might find interesting. But there are also a lot of um, uh, pages on Wikipedia where more regular editors have noticed uh, gaps in the information on the site. So there are actually lists that you can find where if you just want to help contribute to Wikipedia, you can go to these lists and see what is incomplete and do the research to make those articles complete. Um, And so that's sort of like a, a checklist that everyone works from to make sure that pages that either don't exist or are really short can be um, can be added to. But then, for example, we have some women here from the YWCA tonight, and they notice that um, Adelaide Hoodless doesn't have a lot of information on Wikipedia, and she was one of the founders of the YWCA Hamilton. So they're really interested in finding a way to make that information um, more easily accessible through Wikipedia. Um, so it really it really varies. Some people came with exactly knowing what they wanted to do, and other people are open to just learning um, learning more about how to make Wikipedia better. Now, what, with what you're adding, is the, is the intention tonight to be adding objective p- entries to Wikipedia, or is part of the objective to go through and to add some adjectives and some superlatives no. to some female that are in this and add a, 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 a subjective viewpoint of what they did. So subjective viewpoints are not welcome on Wikipedia. Um, their editing guidelines are very strict about objectivity of the edits. So if we were to put something subjective in, it would be taken out. Um, and Wikipedia is really um, great at providing resources for people who want to edit. They are dying to get more people editing the page because it only exists because people all over the world are spending their own time to contribute to it. Um, so they're, um, they're not accepting of subjective additions. Um, so when you talk and, about this yeah. by, so when you say it's a group called art and feminism or art, and, oh, I can't remember the exact name, yeah, you're, you're not really launching the feminist argument for the people who are on there. You're simply putting them out there so we can see them when we go and look up, look people up. You understand what I'm saying? We're not, we're not saying so-and-so was the greatest person at doing this in the world. We're saying here, here's the information you decide. We just want to make sure you know that she was out there doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, uh, I don't think the feminist argument is that so-and-so was great. I think that from a, the event is coming at Wikipedia editing from a feminist perspective in so much that we want women to be represented equally on the site. And at this point, there's, there are more, uh, there's more content online about men in the world than about equally incredibly talented and interesting women. So the fact that as you started by talking about the fact that it was a very small minority of the editors and the super editors Mm -hmm. of Wikipedia that were women, would I guess then that part of the 
emphasis tonight is let, let's try this together when we're all in a room together so we yeah. can have a social event. But you know what? When you leave here, keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Is that oh, the idea right. that this should be yeah. ongoing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you hear Wikipedia editor, you think that maybe you should have a PhD or something in order to be able to do it. And it is much more accessible than that. Um, It's a lot of fun. We've been having a lot of laughs. And um, I think that this event is also about showing people that Wikipedia is a collaborative process. It's a really cool concept that has changed the world. And you can be part of it. And it's really easy. Uh, and people will be, I'm assuming, doing this at home. You would probably want other people at home to try and figure this out. Absolutely. Um, so Wikipedia has their own editing uh, how-to uh, set of pages, and they're very easy to follow. Um, and then Art and Feminism uh, has great resources. Um, they have gone ahead and done video tutorials. So you can watch someone else go through the process. Um, that's how I learn. And um, and then both Wikipedia and Art and Feminism, and I'm sure there are many other uh, niche organizations with um, with a desire to improve Wikipedia in a certain way. But they have lists of incomplete articles so that you don't just have to pull something out of thin air. You can uh, work on incomplete areas of the site that have already been identified. Well, I hate to say this, uh, and we'll have to fix this before the end of tonight, but I did actually <laughs> do a search for Aaron O'Neill, and there is no Wikipedia. There's an <laughs> Eric O'Neill, but that goes to your point, another guy, right? Uh, he was a former yeah. FBI counterterrorism expert, but there's no Aaron O'Neill. So anyone at home, uh, Aaron O'Neill, she needs a Wikipedia page. And remember, it can't be subjective, but, you know, we've got to start with somewhere, Aaron. Yeah, I live Real- in Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> Go look her up online. You'll find her. Aaron, listen, I really appreciate the time today. In- enjoy the rest of the evening. It sounds like a great idea. And listen, if, if-, if it is as imbalanced, as you say, and as Wikipedia mm-hmm. is saying it is, you know what? Sure. The, what, I mean, even for people who say, oh, it's just Wikipedia, there's no harm. There can only be a bonus there's to no doing harm. this. So That's right. really appreciate you doing the, taking the time tonight. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you for taking the interest. That is, uh, it actually, you know what? It's actually sounds kind of fun. I have, I have, I have great concerns about Wikipedia. Not to do with what Aaron has just been saying. And perhaps we've reached a point where more and more people are getting more and more careful and more and more on board. I'm still though, having been burned a few times, thankfully nothing that has ended up in print that I know of that has been colossally wrong based on it. But there have been some Wikipedia entries and there continue to be that you get a little nervous about. But, but... If the idea here is, you know what, girls and women are going online and they're searching for stuff, and if we can use this so they get the name, they get the topic in front of their eyes as a launching off point to go and look up more stuff on other sites, then perfect. Why not? There's no harm in that whatsoever. I think the collaborative nature of Wikipedia actually is what makes it great. And and what I was taught early on in its lifespan when it was still like in schools, they were like, oh, don't ever use Wikipedia. I was taught by, by my mom, like... Don't use Wikipedia as a way to find the sources. That's right. Go as to a the place sources to start. on Wiki, like go to the Wikipedia article, find something that you think is interesting, find the source, go to that, and then determine if that is is worthy of of your time. And I think that's still a useful way to look at you at Wikipedia. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem with that, and I've done that a million times. But first thing I said to my son before he headed off to university, when you write a paper, do not ever 
cite Wikipedia in your footnotes because if you do, and if I'm one of your teachers, one of your professors, I give you an F before I even start. However, as I say, the idea to go throw more information on there, that you have people who are honestly, legitimately making a solid effort to make sure is accurate, well, that's only a good thing, and I, I applaud them Well, for but that. I, I think what one of my favorite things about Wikipedia, and, and Aaron said it in when you asked her, that she said it's, it's fun to be an editor. And I think that Wikipedia has, has always been a place where you can have a little more fun I guess with it. Like my favorite thing is, is as a sports fan, when things, when some guy makes a terrible mistake, somebody will take it upon themselves to edit that person's Wikipedia page to say something humorous about it. So when the Blue Jays and they were playing the Texas Rangers, they beat him and Rugnet Odor threw away the ball that the Blue Jays ended up winning on. Somebody edited his Wikipedia page so that instead of saying throws right, it said throws poorly. And I enjoyed that greatly. And see, to me, that is the absolute reason why you can't trust Wikipedia because it makes a, it, it is not legit. If you're going to be, it's, it's, it can be a laugh, but I would never, anyway, we can discuss that another day. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML. Press release came out this morning, 9 30, 10 o'clock uh, came across my desk and it had announced that for the second straight year, now we kind of knew this, but it was just establishing and confirming that for the second straight year, the DeFasco Van- ArcelorMittal DeFasco Vanier Cup will be returning to Hamilton next November, November 25th, 2017. Now, this was not a surprise. We've known that it was a two-year deal when they brought it in here last year. If there was any surprise at all, it was that some people may have thought that after last year's less than stellar turnout, which is a very complimentary way of saying there was almost nobody there, that they may have looked to move it somewhere else. Well, Graham Brown is the head of U Sports, used to be CIS. It's essentially the governing, not essentially, it is. It's the governing body for university sports in this country. He's the guy who's in charge of all this stuff, and he joins us now. Graham, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, Scott, thanks for having me on. Uh, you were on with Bill Kelly earlier this morning, I know that, but for people who missed it, because there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about, but just about the Vanier Cup, as I say, there there was a disappointing, and I think that's an understatement, attendance in Hamilton at Tim Hortons Field this year, and some people thought maybe that would mean you would take it somewhere else. Why bring it back for a second time? Well, yeah, you're right. Uh, 5,000 people in a 22,000-seat stadium was a very disappointing turnout from our perspective, but uh, we, we had committed to two years in Hamilton, uh, for for reasons uh, because it's it's the right place to host it it's got a great football community and you know we take some of the blame of of the poor attendance last year with our marketing strategy uh, we got a, out a little late in the game um and i really felt uh, and so does everybody else that's behind it including the city and, and the tie cats and arsler middle defasco and all of our other partners in, the, in town that uh we want to we want to fill it this year and we want to show that last year was was just uh, an unfortunate um situation and doesn't uh, in any way shape or form reflect on you know the awesome football community in Hamilton had there been any thought of maybe taking it elsewhere or was there never any doubt no there certainly was never any doubt in our eyes because you know we like I said we take full responsibility for for the turnout and uh, you know to take it somewhere else would would essentially be be holding ourselves unaccountable um, and I think also the, the commitment that we had from the city 
and everybody, including Arsenal Middle DeFasco, was based on two years. So we're we're there, and we're you know you had commented about uh, you know this sort of being a stepping on, and we always said two years. But you know I just want people to know, and when we did all of the you know, talks around the city today, was to let people know it is back, and and we believe we're going to fill that that stadium this year. Last thing on the Vanier Cup, because again, I got a lot of other things I want to get to. Um, it, it it would be exceedingly helpful, though, to have an Ontario team, especially one from this region, in that game, would it not? And, and Mac and McMaster too, right? That's well. I, I, I mean, absolutely. If it was Mac, if it was Guelph, if it was Western, if it was one of the Toronto teams, even up to Ottawa. I mean, something within a few hours' drive would be very, very helpful, as opposed to Laval and Calgary, which really, I mean, it's tough to to get here from there. Absolutely. When you have an event uh, such as the Vanier Cup and, and you know, the, the basis of it is you don't know who the two teams are until seven days before, it's incredibly hard to market that. Um, however, that's hard to market from a team perspective. Uh, when you have a team from Ontario, I, you know, that's going to make it a lot easier. But, you know, our strategy has to work regardless. Although, you know, there's a, a good chance an Ontario team will be in the Vanier Cup this year, there's also a chance uh, that there will be a team from the East and a team from the West. So, you know, we have to plan and put the right strategies in place. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I believe strongly that, uh, you know, there, there are two football events in, in this country that are iconic, and that's the Grey Cup and the Vanier Cup. And and uh, both should be able to stand alone and, and be able to, to fill a stadium regardless of what time of the year or where they are. You have now been on this job. You took over as head of university sports about a year and a half ago. I think it was September 2015. So you have been now able to get from coast to coast to probably most, if not all, of the universities that play university sports in this country. Uh, And that probably has given you a pretty good taste of the good and the bad. And one of the things that always has struck me as difficult to completely understand is the fact that Canadian university sports often gets considerably less than a full measure of respect from sports fans across the country. Why is that? Well, you're right. I have been coast to coast from, from Victoria to St. John's, Newfoundland to, you know, UVic and Memorial University and everywhere in between. And, and you know, the irony of what you've just said, though, is, is across the country, there's a great deal of respect being given to university sport. I mean, many of our games are, are full, uh, whether it be football, basketball, hockey, uh, you know, a lot of it is, is regional, a lot of it's geographical, a lot of it is based on, you know, a lot of the sports and, and who you're playing and whatnot. Um, what, we've, what we've not done a very good job at nationally is, is taking those games and, and showing them. Most people think, uh, you know, they'll look at McMaster and, and they'll see, well, they play, you know, across all their sports, probably 300 games a year and they're not all full. Well, the fact of the matter is no school in North America is full for all of their games. And we have to do a better job of showing the games that are full, that, that are at a super high level, and finding a way to get people to come and see them, put them on TV, find a way to get the, the game out there. You talk about regional, is that, and we know that there are certain pockets in this country where schools do exceptionally well with attendance, and there is enormous school spirit, and you get big crowds and all that. What is the, have you been able to put your finger on what that magic elixir is? What, what are the conditions that allow a university to be that, to, to be able to, most days, and even considering what you just said about the fact that you're not going to do it for every game, that in most cases, what, is the, what are the conditions that exist for a university to really be able to do that in this country? Well, I, I can tell you across, the, let's just talk about some of the schools that are close by. We'll just talk Brock, McMaster, and Guelph. Sure. Three with all within 100 kilometers of one another. 
you know, they've cherry-picked games, and they've put a lot of effort behind those games to fill and get their, their student body and community out. So take Brock. They run a basketball game and a hockey game at, at the Meridian Centre. Both of them sold out. And, you know, those are, are, are key games that they market and promote and tell their student body and everybody to get behind it and come out to those games. Is, are every game at the Meridian Centre? No. Uh, and, you know, they, they do work hard on that. Go over to Guelph, very similar. They, they run the Frosty Mug, sold out every year at the Sleeman Centre. And they run a basketball game. They've got their new facility. In McMaster, they, they uh, did the, the Labor Day game. And I know it was in a big stadium and, and whatnot, but they tried to... And I think over time, the Labor Day game in McMaster will be similar to the Panda Bowl game uh, between Ottawa and Carlton. You know, when that first started and they brought it back, it was 8,000, 10,000. Uh, last year, they had 24,000 people at that game. Uh, so they, you know, every school with their with their strategy, I think, is called just taking one game over the top or, or two games and not homecoming. Homecoming is your, sure. your traditional cherry-picking game. But take another one and, and really try and elevate it from a marketing standpoint. And there are some places, Graham, though, that even, and, and you're exactly right about what you just said, about finding those games and really building them. But there are some places, and I'm thinking what comes to mind immediately is football in Quebec, where every game is that now. What What's worked so well with football in that province, and is it translatable to other places around the country? Well, uh, just in this new role, and, and I and you've given me a lot more credit because I, I started in just the beginning part of uh, November officially, but uh, I feel like I've I've been there a couple years. <laughs> but uh, but you know what? They, you're right. They've they've somehow found uh, with football in that province um, a sport that people have become passionate about, that people are following, um, the, both French and English uh, alike. And I, I don't know if there's a magic formula to it. They've worked really hard on that. That that didn't happen overnight. You know, you, you look at Montreal's football program, it's really the last four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the school took it upon themselves to take football seriously or more seriously. I, you know, it's debatable. It was always probably high on their priority. But they brought in a great coach. They changed the culture. They invested some resources. And lo and behold, you know, now you've got this massive battle between Montreal and Laval. And you throw Sherbrooke in there and Concordia now are elevating their game. Uh, and you have a you know a really passionate uh, amateur football community. You know the CJEP football, um, arguably, and and some people can say because of the age of the CJEP player. But the fact is, even at that level, it's very very good football. How important then, when you're trying to build and trying to as much as you can replicate that? How important is TV? in the big picture of university sports in this country now? Because it's been, it's been a struggle to, to get games consistently shown. Locally, yes, but nationally or even regionally. How important is TV? Yeah, I think TV is, is very important. I think media is important. I think any uh, radio is important. And, and, the, and all of the elements of it are important, but they have to work together. The television is important because it still is, and it's probably the one last frontier where sport is still important because it, it needs to be viewed live. And, and it also needs to be um, done in a manner that, that tells the story and all of that. So a lot of the schools are doing a great job with their digital, streaming their games, a uh, lot of great partnerships locally with the local, you know, in your case, you know, CHCH and Channel 14 and whatnot. But the fact is, in order to elevate it and, and take it to the next level, you need to somehow have a presence nationally. 
One other area that I look at and I think, man, you know what? I know that universities have tried to tap into this and, and if they ever could, and that's alumni, because you look south of the border and alumni, and I'm not talking about the donors who cause scandals at programs. I'm just talking about people in seats and really becoming passionate and staying passionate about their schools. That, that seems to me to be an area that, that all of your schools have really tried to get into, and it's been a bit of a struggle, but if it ever could happen, that's a lot of people that suddenly become interested in their schools again and interested in these sports. Well, that's right. I think uh, all of the schools are trying very hard to, to re-engage their alumni. Uh, some of it is, is philanthropic. They're looking for alumni resources financially to come back to the school. But, you know, a lot of the schools have done such an amazing job of building uh, a presence on campus, and they want their alumni to come back and see. I can probably assure you a, a student-athlete 25 years ago at Mac would come onto campus and, and be wowed at the changes, and that goes across at Western, at Guelph, at you know, Windsor, even where I went. But, you know, uh, it, it's all about trying to engage uh, the demographics. Now, going back to your question of, about the U.S., I mean, we have to be careful when we think of the U.S. There are, there are um, just shy of 1,400 U.S. NCAA schools. And, you know, most people can't name more than 50 of them mm-hmm. by name and, name and moniker. And we oftentimes get tainted by the fact that we think every NCAA institution is Michigan or Ohio State or Stanford or Notre Dame, when in fact, you know, those are the, the ultimate exceptions. Uh, we have 56 universities, um, much different focus. But when you look at the quality of our, our athletic programs now and the resources that are being allocated to them and the coaches, I, I honestly uh, believe one thing Canada has done very, very well. We, we produce, uh, across a number of sports, excellent coaches. And when you combine all of that, you know, I think people just really need to get out and come and see, and they'd be surprised at the quality of, of the sport that's being played. And in typical fashion, you know, we're Canadians, and, and we, we find it hard to, to brag about what we do and, and toot our own horn at times. Well, you know, it has always struck me, and, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the line, it's always struck me that there is an immense deep, deep well of potential with Canadian university sports that hasn't been able to be tapped fully. And, and I, I don't know whether it can be tapped fully, but when, when, you know, when you go to, earlier this year, McMaster volleyball, men's volleyball was playing against Ohio state at home and they filled the gym, but they swept Ohio state. And there were a lot of people, Graham, that were completely shocked by that, that the top school in the NCAA got beaten by one of the top schools in Canada. That, that seems to be still like eye bulging news to people that we actually can hold our own with some of those schools and, and that Canadian university sports is actually pretty good. That seems to still be a bit of a surprise to some people. Not, I don't think, the people who have been to see it, but to a lot of people who haven't because of what you just said, the NCAA. Well, if it's not NCAA, it doesn't matter. And that's right. And that might, that might take a whole generation. I mean, you'll look at the people who have gone through who hold that perspective. It'd be very difficult, especially because we don't have a strong national media uh, footprint, although we have a very good one with Sportsnet, and, and they're uh, working very closely with us to try and elevate university sport at the national level. Uh, it's going to really start um, by, by changing the culture and the perspective on the campuses now with this next generation going through. And then the one area that U-Sports is going to be focusing on next year with a, uh, an enormous part of our marketing efforts is going to be into high schools. Hmm. And, you know, we're working with the School Sport Canada right now on trying to create a program uh, for high schools that identify youth sports and the youth sport athlete of the month in all of the high schools. You know, obviously we can't go across Canada. There's just too many to start and do that all at once. 
But we need to get young people who are heading to university to have a different perspective of what sport is when they get there. And I think sometimes when we wait till they get there, we spend three years trying to, you know, to convince them and they're already there. We need to get the, young, the younger uh, population when they get there going, you know, I'm really excited to go watch basketball or football or hockey or lacrosse. We just have one minute, and that's not nearly enough time, so I apologize. I'm going to give you a question here that you probably need about 10 minutes to answer, but we'll do our best. You, for a dozen years or so, were the head of Rugby Canada, which, again, is a sport that struggles at times to get attention in this country. And so there are some similarities. But do you, having been through that and now sitting in the seat you're in, do you have a great deal of optimism that Canadian University Sports in a generation will be seen much more broadly and much in a different way than it has been traditionally? Or is it always going to be, you know, year after year, we're going to have teams that do really well, we're going to have places that are really great, but it's going to be tough at times? Well, it's, I, I have a very unique perspective, I think, in Canadian sport. When, when I first started at rugby 14 years ago, we had two staff. Um, our budget was about $2.5 million, But you had a sport that just had an absolute desire to be bigger and better mm. across the country and 14 years later 14 years later at 52 staff and you know, i don't know it'll probably come close to 25 million turnover this year you know we're a, a, an event in in vancouver this coming weekend they've already sold 75,000 tickets at bc place wow um you know and what, so it's what, there patience it's there it's patience uh it's it's perseverance um and it, and you really have to have a group of people who are hell-bent, if that's the right or wrong word, on seeing it through. And right now, I'm, I'm really optimistic. Our athletic directors across the country, you know, they're putting a ton of effort in on their campuses. I think uh, at, at the youth sports CIS level, we've let the schools down. I think uh, nationally, we've under-delivered for them. While they've been building up successful programs and working hard on campus, uh, we've done a, a really poor job. And, and that's with no disrespect to my predecessors, who are both friends of mine. I think it just is a new enthusiasm uh, to change how we look at university sport across the country. And when I do have a, a contest I'm running with my colleagues at Rugby Canada, they're playing their World Cup qualifier at, at uh, Tim Hortons Field this summer against the U.S., and we have a, an inside bet who is going to get more fans uh, to the international rugby match or to the uh, Vanier Cup. <laughs> you know, listen, uh, Graham, listen, I appreciate the time. I am not on Graham's payroll. He has offered me no money, but I would say this. Mac is hosting the Provincial Men's Volleyball this weekend, Friday night and Saturday. If you are someone who has never gone to a Canadian University sports event because you don't think it's any good, give this weekend, make this weekend the one thing that you would try to see if it's any good. Because I'm telling you... Um, if, if after this weekend you decide that it's not worth watching, then that's fine. But this is the best volleyball in North America, quite honestly. And give it a look. Graham, listen, I appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Scott, thank you for, and thanks for, for all you're doing to help put, uh, put university sport on the map. Graham Brown of, uh, of U Sports. Again, uh, Friday night, Saturday, go take a look at Mac Volleyball. It's the best, honestly, it's the best team on campus. It's the best team, one of the best teams in Canada. And if you are one of those people, and not everybody buys it, but if you're one of those people who thinks Canadian University sports is no good, go look at this and then you can decide that afterwards if you want. But go take a look at this. I think you may be surprised. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now let me bring you in. Rick Zamperin, sports director, assistant program manager, 
backup cleaner. I don't know what else. We always he adds a new <laughs> title every time he comes on. Glad to have you here, Rick. Thanks for joining me. Rose is appreciating the help as we speak. Let me read you a tweet that I know that you saw, and I am sure that when you saw this tweet from a couple days ago, you rolled your eyes in disbelief. It was tweeted out by Toronto Mayor John Tory. He says, and this is his direct tweet, I'm confident the championships are coming, exclamation mark, at Maple Leafs, at Blue Jays, at Raptors, at Toronto FC, at Toronto Rocks Lacrosse. End of tweet. And yeah, (laughs) wah, wah. Now, this is the guy who was the former commissioner for four years of the Canadian Football League. And of all the teams he lists, he forgets the Toronto Argonauts. Um, Rick, if the former commissioner, the guy who was in charge of the league, if the Toronto Argonauts are not even on the back burner of his brain, what chance does that team actually have in the city of Toronto? Yeah, it was uh, a major faux pas, no doubt about it, for John Tory. Now, he did send out another tweet 20 or 21 minutes later, whatever it was, saying, can't forget about the beloved Argo. Yeah, well, again, wah, wah. Too, yeah, too little, too late. <laughs> th- th- I mean, that's like that's the person who writes the tweet and then sends something and goes, well, that's I was misquoted, or that's not the person I really exactly. am, or something. That, that was a gaffe, and he someone called him on it, and he was scrambling to not look... Yeah. You know, but no, I, I honestly, I saw that and I thought if the guy who was running the league and should, you would think, have some kind of passion for that league, if even he doesn't remember that team exists, man, oh man, this, that, that team in that city is in a lot of trouble. It, it, it you know what, it is a horrible sign. Um, and, and the one thing I think of is, you know, you could probably give that sort of, you know, uh, um, test or, or whatever you want to call it to a hundred Torontonians and say, you know, send out a shout out to, uh, you know, our, our sports teams or city sports teams and encourage them to go on, uh, to bigger and better things. And, and I would be hard pressed to say, uh, even 20 people would mention the Argos, you know, yeah, Leafs but, would be there, Raptors would be yeah, there. Yeah, but the, ro- the rock lacrosse, there. like I well, get the that, Leafs and the Raptors. <laughs> But to yeah. remember the Rock, but not the Argos, that's, I mean, okay, if it was just the Raptors, Jays, and Leafs, yeah. okay, you can you can argue then that they've put that into a special category. You're talking about the Toronto Rock lacrosse, Rick, who most people don't even know still exists. It, well, exactly. And that one, that one was the one that uh, made my eyebrows raise the highest, because <laughs> why would you include the Rock and not the Argos? Yeah, the Rock have won... Uh, you know, multiple championships in lacrosse, and it is a, you know, quote-unquote professional league. But still, uh, to bypass a team that not only, forget about, you know, him being the commissioner of the CFL, but to bypass a team that has, you know, 100-plus years in your city and has won championships and has been successful, to, to miss them, to completely bypass them, is the, is the reddest of red flags I've ever seen. The thing about this that really, from a Hamilton perspective, and, and I want to hear your opinion on this, because I really believe, Rick, that this lack of interest, this complete disinterest, frankly, in the Argos, this really, I think, hurts the Ticats, because Edmonton and Calgary have a great rivalry, and there are others, Montreal and Ottawa, are getting to have a rivalry, and other places... It's not a rivalry. I mean, people say Toronto and Hamilton, the Argos and the Ticats are, are a rivalry. It's not a rivalry when only one side cares who wins. For it to matter, 
when the other when you lose, it has to hurt, and you have to know when your team wins that the other side hurts. That's what makes a rivalry. You know you're causing pain, and if they don't care, who that that to me hurts the Ticats. It hurts the whole thing in Southern Ontario. You hit the nail on the head. There's there's no doubt about it, and that. That kind of ill will between the fans has not been there um, probably for the better part of two decades, really, maybe even longer than that, because, you know, uh, down at Iverwind Stadium, and they were, there used to be fisticuffs and, on Labor Day, and whenever the two teams met. Ears were bitten off. Exactly. I mean, this was Tyson Holyfield uh, with, with, <laughs> with both fighters being Tyson because there was bad That's blood, right. serious bad blood. But, you know, I understand, you know, the, the new family atmosphere to Morton's Field, and that's great because when you want to, sure. you know, you, you want to take your kids, you want to have a, a safe and enjoyable kind of environment. Uh, but in the same light, you still want that ill will between the two fan bases. And the longer this kind of, um, I don't know, overlooking of the Argos that we've seen, uh, th- this rivalry has indeed suffered. It, it's it's magical at Tim Morton's Field. I mean, when the Argos are there, Ticats fans want nothing more than to see their guys in black and gold beat up to a pulp the guys in double blue. When you go down the highway to BMO Field, there are more Ticats fans yep. than Argos fans there, and it's just troubling to see. And what would happen? What would a, what would an Argo Ticat game look like in Toronto if the Ticat fans didn't make the trip? Well, it would be uh, more than half empty, like without a doubt. I mean, there'd literally be you know eight thousand fans there. Uh, you know, you throw in your your five to eight thousand Ticats fans, and now you have somewhat of a uh, a half full house because now it holds thirty or thirty three thousand. Uh, uh, fans, but uh, man, oh man, if this was uh, any more than a, uh, you know, down the highway kind of rivalry, if it was, you know, Toronto, uh, Ottawa, when you had to make, you know, a five or six hour trip uh, and you had a one-sided kind of fan base uh, rivalry, I mean, Toronto would seriously be hurting because really the Argos are benefiting from the rabid Ticats fan base. BMO Field, game number one out of the gate this year again is Ticats and Argos, and I know that the Argonauts front office looked at that schedule and said, yes, we're going to start off on a great foot because we'll have a packed house because all the Ticats fans will be here. Uh, apart from that, it, it, I, I really don't have much confidence in them, even with you know a championship-caliber coaching staff, to turn this ship around, at least from a fan-based perspective. Well, that's the thing. I, I look at these signings they've had with Tressman and with Pop, and today there were some new signings as well, and, and that's all great, and I think they will make the team better. I really do believe the Argos will be better, maybe not immediately, but in time with that coaching crew. But that doesn't create, that doesn't necessarily generate interest. It doesn't generate a buzz. It doesn't generate the... Gretzky, Candy, Rocket no. Ishmael type of buzz. You know, I mean, that we're, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. You know, hey, Doug Flutie's coming to town. We, you know, we got Matt Dunnigan. We're going to championships. We're, we're winning titles. This is, you know, pre-Blue Jays explosion, really, with, you know, Carter and Alomar and them winning championships. Um, and, and obviously years before the Raptors came along, too. Now with the success of Toronto FC going to a championship final last year, it is even uh, a steeper hill to climb for the Argonauts. The top few teams in Toronto, obviously, right now, things are looking pretty uh, glorious for. The Leafs are doing well, beating Detroit tonight. The Raptors are struggling a little with Lowry out, but they're still a talking point. The Jays, obviously, the last few years. And, and TFC, even, last year had this great finish. But below that, it seems as though everything to do with sports 
in Toronto is about a malaise. And I'm wondering if that hurts other Hamilton franchises. When you look at the, the Bulldogs, the Mississauga Ice Dogs are the closest thing to a Toronto franchise. And Mississauga, as far as hockey goes, I mean, it's not there is not really there. There's nothing there. It's just a, a rink. There's no rivalry, and even in, we just had Graham Brown, the head of U Sports, on here, and you know, the, with with uh, Labor Day last year, it was the U of T Blues versus McMaster. There's no rivalry between Hamilton and Toronto in university sports. Even it's with Western or Guelph or mm-hmm. whomever. I, I I look at this as I, I'll use the word malaise. I look at this malaise in Toronto sports below the major, 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 major leagues, and I think it, it actually has a detrimental impact on us, on this city. And not only that, you know, I've been thinking about this in, in other kind of, uh, you know, realms of, of our society is not only from a, a sports perspective, but we have so many people from the GTA, so many people from Toronto who are now calling Hamilton home uh, that that, uh, you know, misconception or, uh, you know, perception of this city, I think, is slowly changing in the minds of Toronto. They're not looking to Hamilton to say, you know, there's that deal, uh, you know, that dirty kind of gritty uh, you know, city that no one wants to live in, they obviously have realized that, you know, this is a great place to live, work, and play. And I think that kind of perception has hurt the rivalry factor, if you will. They don't hate us uh, nearly as, as much as, as we hate them. No, I, I, th- I think it actually really hurts a lot of our teams here that the, um, if, when, when a Toronto sports team, whether we hate Toronto or not, people I know, they go, oh, who cares about Toronto? Look, when a Toronto sports team does well, it gets tons of attention, and the mm-hmm. Canadian media is centered in Toronto. Sportsnet is based in Toronto. TSN is based in Toronto. The biggest papers are based in Toronto. And if they're getting attention, by osmosis, you're going to hear about it and think it's a big deal. Right. And that's going to make the Hamilton sports seem like a bigger deal to people. But when it's ignored and you have to actually go down to first Ontario center to learn anything or, or, you know, even the Hamilton media, which is well covered. Um, you know, if you don't see it on the big boys, it, it doesn't exist for a lot of people. Yeah. And the main thing, you know, for, for the networks and, you know, the newspapers, uh, you know, radio, TV stations, you know, they, they want to, uh, obviously be associated with the big newsmakers, with the big sports teams, you know, whatever the city. So, uh, you know, if you're if you're the flavor of the month or the flavor of the decade, uh, you're going to be, uh, you know, associated with that that franchise. You know, the Leafs uh, are probably on an island by themselves. They could uh, do no wrong, really, for, for decades, win, lose, or, or, you know, go to a shootout, I guess, in, the, in today's NHL. But, uh, you know, they're, they're one of those untouchable franchises where you're going to pay attention to them no matter what. The Jays have had their ups and downs. They had a glorious run in the 90s, kind of sank in the two, you know, the early 2000s, and now have come back up. But still, there's that national kind of attention because it's really now the only uh, national baseball team we have. The Argos are in a situation where uh, they're in a nine-team league. Uh, they are overshadowed by Team A, B, C, and, and D, if you want to put in the, the, you know, the Toronto Rock as well, which I don't think that's the case. Uh, but they have just a, a mountain to climb in terms of getting back to that national kind of you know attention. Unless you're a CFL fan or a hardcore football fan, you probably don't even know who the Argos are. Well, and D doesn't have to be the Rock. I mean, D, I, no, I think they're yeah. definitely overshadowed now by Toronto FC by a million miles. And when you have now fallen to the fifth and maybe the sixth spot in that market, you got problems. Uh, very quickly, you just got a couple minutes left. There was some um, discussion at City Council today, the builder 
who were li- yesterday, yesterday, today, I can't remember what it was yeah. now, yeah. Uh, uh, who came to city council and said, listen, uh, give us another chance. We're, you know, yeah, some <laughs> things went wrong, but, you know, we, we're ready to, to make it up and, and do a good job next time. How long until we can talk, honestly, till we can talk about Tim Horton's field and the discussion, Rick, is not about delays, battles of location, faults, falling speakers, whatever else. How long until we can say the name Tim Horton's field and we're only talking about the stadium and the game that, or the whatever is played in there? Well, I think officially, once this litigation is done, I think we could probably stop talking about it. But, but we won't. No, no, but anecdotally, yeah, we're going to talk about this uh, situation, the issues, the troubles uh, for decades. I think it's going to be decades. I think it's going to be a generation of people, maybe even two generations, to say, hey, remember when? Remember when we had to wait half a year? Remember when you know they, they did this and that? Remember when the speaker fell? I mean, it is going to be a long, long time when someone says, no, I don't remember that. I think it's going to be many, many years. Is this is this stadium, man? Somebody's going to freak out when I say this. But is this stadium <laughs> the Bill Buckner of stadiums that he got? <laughs> he was a baseball player who got three thousand hits, and the only thing he's remembered for is the ball that went through his legs in the World Series yeah. game. Is that what's what we're going to have here? I think that <laughs> that's a great analogy, but I think that that will probably be the case until a Grey Cup is hosted at Tipmore's Field because. Then the discussion will be, hey, what a great Grey Cup it was, you know, in Hamilton. Uh, however, if they do host a Grey Cup and it does fall flat, those those comparisons might continue. Let me before I before I let you go, I got one more thing I want to ask. I was going to get to this earlier, but we ran out of time. But um, uh, last night. Don Robertson was on here. We're chatting about the general managers meetings in the NHL, switching over to hockey for a second. And they were talking about all kinds of rule changes down at their general managers meetings in Boca Raton, I think it was. Um, Today, they announced, you know what? No, we're not going to propose any rule changes. Does this mean, Rick, that the NHL and the game of hockey as it stands right now is perfect? No, I think it's far from that. And I think, you know, a lot of the ideas that came uh, over the last day or two uh, th- there were some really radical things, like ultra-radical things. Uh, some, not so much. You know, the, the whole Bob Ganey, you know, you can't leave your feet to block a shot. I, I actually don't mind that. You know, we're not going to see the sprawling seals on the ice trying to block that, you know, rubberized, uh, vulcanized rubber. Um, I think, you know, having that one face-off dot in, in, in uh, each defensive end is a little too radical. I think, uh, you know, some of the things that they were proposing – might be implemented in, you know, 20 years' time. But in today's game, I, I kind of like the flow. Yeah, there's some things, you know, the, the coach's challenge and, uh, you know, the offside rule that need to be addressed. Uh, I don't like the one point for the loser. You know, I'm, I'm a Lou Lamorello supporter in that regard. Um, yeah, it's far from perfect, but I think, uh, you know, radical changes are not needed. I don't think radical changes are going to fix, quote-unquote, fix the National Hockey League. You know what, as I let you go, you know what the one rule is that I really am disappointed that didn't sound like it came up for discussion and should have, and everybody would have been happy if this had, is extend the three-on-three overtime by another three or four minutes if the Mm -hmm. game is tied. There is not one person that I've spoken to or heard talk who says, you know what, when that game goes to overtime and it's three-on-three, man, I am just so bored. (laughs) You know what, make it even ten minutes. Give me five more minutes of that, and I'll be happy. I don't want to see it for a full 60, No, but I, I think it works for a 10-minute overtime. And I don't think it was even discussed, and that to me says, you know what, the guys who are 
we need to, the NHL needs to start saying, listen, we need to bring in some people besides just the folks who are immersed in this and have a vested interest in keeping their right. jobs. We need to have some people, let's bring in some marketing people to help make up the rules in some cases. Let's, let's look at what the people really want. This is an entertainment business. Exactly. I, I'd be for that because you don't know what kind of ideas or, or what kind of angles they're coming from. And that might uh, you know, lead to a discussion that creates a more exciting game. And at the end of the day, that's, that's what they want to do. And my other suggestion that they never brought up, which I'm shocked about, rather than a shootout, I want to bring back the goons. At the end, if it's tied <laughs> after overtime, your two toughest guys go into the center ice circle and you have a fight. And whoever wins wow. the fight, they get the extra point. That, see, that would, that would be, do you think down in the southern states that wouldn't be a selling point? That would probably work in the old IHL. <laughs> <laughs> in a variety of the minor leagues over the years. Exactly. With the talk of, you know, maybe ultimately um, eliminating fighting from the NHL, I'm not sure that would be, uh, you know, an appropriate uh, rule change. And, man, if you had someone really get their clock cleaned, and have some sort of, you know, hospitalization in the process. (laughs) Now you're opening it up to... All right, all right. So my idea is never going to be followed, (laughs) but I just had a text that arrived from someone who is involved in the NHL, local guy, and he says, bring back the goalie race. All right, even (laughs) that would be better than the shootout. Heck, have a mascot race. Have a mascot fight at Center Ice. Now you've got the best of all worlds, Rick. Rick Zamperin from CHML. You can listen to him all the time here on the station, which is a good thing. Rick, thanks for doing this. Uh, that is, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm being facetious with the fight at center ice, just in case anyone actually thought I was being serious about that. Uh, once upon a time, remember, remember the old XFL, the football league that was started by the WWE and by Vince McMahon. And if, if he had great documentary, if he had taken over the NHL, that's how they would have decided games. I'm not actually proposing that, but uh, man, there's a, extend it for a few more minutes. That would be a, uh, that would be a really, really good thing that a lot of people would be more than happy with. Anyway, did you want to jump in very quickly? Yeah, you. well, you said it right there. It's three-on-three three would rarely last longer than 10 minutes, if ever. I don't believe three-on-three three would ever last longer than 10 minutes, so I think if you made continuous three-on-three, three, games would end, and never, and then you'd never have a shootout. Look, even add two minutes to it, two or three minutes to it, and, and see where it goes. I mean... Listen, the, the AHL everybody, Hamilton Bulldogs. Everybody it, loves it. In the seven-minute four-on-four to three-on-three hybrid thing they had in the AHL in their final season, went to one shootout in game 76. Yes, and the now the rule, the reason I'm told that the thing is not extended is the NHLPA is against it. The Players Association don't like it. Uh-huh. Playing five more minutes, seriously? Well, you know what? It's I, I suppose that um, there's always room for negotiation, <laughs> but, I mean, they don't want their players being exhausted or injured or whatever else. I mean, look... The PA should be on board Except with in this the playoffs. too. The PA should be on board with this too because this is this is more viewers for them. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred. AM nine hundred CHML.